Welcome to the 48th episode of It Wasn't Me, a true crime podcast where we discuss murders that intrigue us. I'm Mercedes. And I am Cindy. Thank you for listening to last week's episode where we featured love-struck teenage murderer Nikki Reynolds. Our show is often horrifying and graphic, and we do use offensive language. So if you have kids, put them away for a while and join us for a murder. Also, we are passionate and always have been about true crime. But we have to warn you that sometimes we're going to make jokes and we will laugh during our podcast. Want to learn more about us? Please visit our website at itwasn'tmetruecrime.com to find links to our Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter pages. If you like what you hear and you'd like to help support us, please subscribe to our podcast on your favorite platform and leave us a five-star rating with a comment. Also, please recommend our podcast to your friends. The more the merrier. So, how's it going, Cindy? You staying dry? Yes, I did not float away. We were an island for a little while, but it did not float. Yeah, so, um, <laughs> as you know, we were in the storm's path, and it was a very wet, um, like, it was a flooding hurricane this yes. time, rather than the wind, which, you know, I don't know which one is, I mean, the the wind one to me was way worse. That was a Cat 5, and this, we were on the outer bands, but, yeah, we have the sun today, the yes. sun's out, and uh, my yard's almost dry. Oh, well... The canal came up and was like over into my front yard and into the neighborhood, and then people were driving fast. Luckily, my house is high off the ground, right? So there wasn't a wake going through my yeah. house, but there yeah. were people with wakes in their house because of drivers. But uh, I was thinking, I was like, if Hurricane Michael had been as slow as Hurricane Sally, I don't think any of us would be no. here. Yes, yeah, so I'm just really thankful that I am too. I know a lot of bridges were washed out. I know, you know, Pensacola and uh, Orange Beach, Mobile Bay, Mobile Bay, all those places. I'm praying for them and, um, you know, donating money to the, definitely to the, I guess, organizations that helped all us out and are still helping us out Mm -hmm. in this area. There's an organization called Team Rubicon. Uh huh. And my dad and his wife were trying to clear their yard and, they were doing it with like a, a riding lawnmower. Your and dad just, and his wife were cleaning his own yard. Yes. Yes. Okay. He was cleaning his own yard like back, you know, two years ago. Uh-huh. And they just happened to drive by. Team Robicon just drove by. Yes. Okay. And saw that they were like driving the riding lawnmower to try to like carry stuff because they were not here. So everyone in their neighborhood put their debris in my dad's yard. What? Yes. Oh, God. Because he lived on two kind of large lots. Oh, okay. And um, so, which was kind of shitty that they did that. Yeah. But, so anyway, this team Rubicon came by. They saw that. And then my dad is a veteran and they help veterans. So it just kind of was like. Okay. So if you want to help out, mm-hmm. team Rubicon's good. Um, yes. KJ Navy's good. Mercy Chefs. Um, all those are definitely worthwhile organizations, if you ask me, um, to donate your money to if you're interested in helping out yes, definitely, people in the path. Yes, definitely, because the Mercy Chefs is still here. They just, they left to go to um, the hurricane that hit where my husband is, uh, Lake Charles. God, what was the name? Mark, Marcus? Laura. Laura. God, there's so many. We've got two more in the Gulf right now, so hmm, we might be talking about storms again next week. <laughs> no, right? right? Yeah, so I've got a good one for us this week. Do you? Yeah. You I'm just glad that we can be here, because seeing how I, I thought I was going to have to oh, quarantine. Yes. She had a COVID scare, so, um, well, no. Uh, no. We were thinking we were going to do this virtually, and then I'm like, well, there could be all kinds of issues with that. 
Although I think we should try it sometime just to see what we sound like and, and whatnot. But so we this week, out. this week we are together, <laughs> no, not virtual. I did not have to quarantine. Woohoo! So happy for you. I mean, I do have for my, for my other, I have two jobs, but my, you know, I, I call one's my wife, one's my girlfriend. My wife job, I don't have to, I should probably say my husband job or my boyfriend job, but my, my main career I don't have to quarantine, but the other one I do. Yes, which because makes sense because you're actually preparing food and drink for other people. So I would appreciate if someone was positive that they were not working in a restaurant. Yes, well, and she's not, but okay. I, it's just weird how. Yes. Forty-eight hours ago, I was in contact with that person, but because we had mask on, job one says, "Oh, you're good. You're good." But job two was like. No, yeah, and, and you know what? Who really, really knows? I, yeah. I'm just thankful that you're healthy and I'm healthy and here we are. And they're paying me regardless. Yes. Oh, that's not, <laughs> that's a plus, yes. right? Yeah. <laughs> Yay. All right, so this week's murder, um, we are traveling to, to Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Oh, you found you one. Wisconsin, yes. Wisconsin. You know, when you uh, put in um, Wisconsin, you get like uh, George Floyd pops up. You get Jeffrey Dahmer pops up. So, you know, that was a hard one for me to find one. And then I just kind of like, you know, in my way, somehow trip upon this one. Yeah. And it is a little bit similar to some of the episodes that we've done. We did uh, with Jennifer Farber-Delos, where the husband murdered the wife, Mm -hmm. as well as um, in the Kaler case where the husband murdered the wife, the grandmother, and the two daughters. So it's along that, but it has a cool twist at the end. So I'm excited. Okay, let's hear it. All right. So let me start by introducing you, introducing, (laughs) introducing you to Jesse Michael Anderson, who was born in Alton, Illinois on May 3rd, 1957. Have you ever been to Alton, Illinois? I'm not sure I've ever been to Illinois. <laughs> okay. So let me tell you that Alton, Illinois is across the river from my university. I went to St. Louis University. Okay. And there's a restaurant called Fast Eddie's Bon Air. I know it, a guy. We call him Fast Eddie. Okay. So so <laughs> Fast Eddie's is a restaurant, um, a bar slash restaurant that has been open since like 1821 or something like that. Like, like it's old. Oh, wow. And it's an old river town. But you go to Fast Eddie's and you get delicious burgers and you know like they had kebabs and things like that delicious cold beer and for dirt cheap mm. so it's like a very fun hangout for us when we were in um when i was in university delicious yeah. burger right now I know. <laughs> I know. And, you know the, the place the town is just a cute little river town it's kind of you know the older architecture and whatnot but i, I know a few times we would uh, take a boat over there or just take a car and leisurely drive because the foliage there is absolutely gorgeous in the fall with all the wow. leaves changing and, and stuff. So, yeah, I was like, mm, I've been there. <laughs> all right. So, anyway, our guy, Jesse Anderson, um, grew up there. He was born and bred there, and he was raised as a good Catholic. He, You know, I don't think he stood out. He wasn't exceptional uh, in any great way, but he was a good kid. You know, he, he made his parents proud. He made good grades. He was into sports. He actually was um, a brown belt in karate. He was a Boy Scout. He was very involved in civic projects. So, you know, he just like made himself like the perfect kid. His dad died of a heart attack when he was a teenager and his mother ended up remarrying while um, pretty quickly while he was still in in high school. And he ended up graduating from Alton High School in 1975. 
I'm really not sure what he did from with his life between 1975 and 1980. I do know that in 1980, he married a woman named Deborah Ann Eichert, and they had a son. But the marriage didn't last long. It was only lasted four years. The couple had a nasty divorce, and they had a custody battle in 1984. And records show that Anderson accused Deborah of extreme and repeated mental cruelty. All right, so can we talk about a husband saying his wife has... Um, given him extreme and repeated mental cruelty like what would that sound like like please wipe your feet off when you come in the door <laughs> rinse your dishes off he probably maybe because he wasn't like super maybe in her eyes like exceptional or um you know super successful and maybe she was like you're just a loser it you're could just be a piece of shit and and that know? definitely could be but i kind of feel like it might have been the other way now, and then i'm not sure in that marriage but in his mm-hmm his later marriage i really i know that he was kind of like the perpetrator of mental Ah. cruelty anyway he lost custody of their son uh he didn't he was denied custody of their son after that was over but it didn't keep him down for long in the same year as his divorce 1984 he graduated from elmhurst college which is a private liberal arts school it's a christian school um like christ church or something i can't remember but um, it was about 30 minutes outside of Chicago. And if you've never been to Illinois, you've never been to Chicago, which is no. a definite go-to place. I want to go so Okay, badly. so you and I will have to go to Chicago for yes. a summer trip, maybe when our boys are doing a live show. Yes. We're kind of groupies for a certain true crime podcast. Know, which I've been really slacking on. I haven't uh-huh. listened to them in a while, but we're supposed to go see them in January. Let's not forget. Okay, well, it's not in Chicago, but we have, definitely need to go to Chicago. Have you broke that news to your husband yet? Oh no, not yet. That's it's occurring on our um, <laughs> on, on our anniversary. If you're listening, I won't be here for our anniversary. <laughs> Love you. <laughs> All right. So less than a year after graduating from college and divorcing his first wife, he married another woman, Barbara E. Lynch, in Chicago on March 30th, 1985. Barbara was born just outside of Chicago. She was tall, beautiful, and blonde. She had a college degree and a high-paying job. She worked for a stockbroker. So she was a prize for yeah. him. And Jesse was by now a successful commercial oil salesman and an entrepreneur. Oh, nice. They were a power couple. They were devoted to each other, at least um, outwardly, and they were devoted to the church. They were involved in all kinds of civic organizations. Like, mm. he was in the Lions Club, uh, and she was in the Women's Club. Oh, well, they were the who's who. They were. They were probably all in the newspaper oh, and yeah. things like that. And then they decided that, um, you know, well, they banked some money. They decided that they wanted to move to uh, somewhere a little bit, you know, a suburb somewhere so that they could start a family. And he had an opportunity in Milwaukee. So they ended up buying a mock tutor home on some acreage about 20 miles north of milwaukee and their home by the way at the time in 1985 or 7 was two hundred and thirty-five thousand dollars, and in today's time that's about four hundred eighteen thousand dollars home so it's a it's like a mcmansion type but i'm okay so i'm thinking about a four hundred thousand dollar home where we live would not be a mansion unfortunately so but i would well but it would be in certain subdivisions where certain wealthy people live yes because i lived in a decent subdivision mm-hmm. before hurricane michael and that's about how much my house is worth that's how much i'm trying to sell my pre-michael house to for huh okay that little center block house yeah on the road. so i would say that <laughs> yeah it's a decent su- a suburban home in, in our area 
Okay. And, you know, 20 miles outside of Milwaukee, it's probably, you I know. I mean, that's Bay Point-ish. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So, on, on April 21st, 1992, it was a Tuesday, the couple had a well-deserved night out without their kids. So, at this time, 1992, they have th- three children. They have a five-year-old, a two-year-old, and a one-year-old. Okay, I have a question. Yes. Me. So, if he lost custody of his first son, does that mean he lost all rights? Or he just didn't win the major cut? You know, it's not like it is today. It was So, he gets visitation? I'm not really sure if he ever had visitation with his son or not. Um, later on, it's said that his first wife shied away from publicity. So, you know, when when our event happens, you know, the reporters are automatically going to go to the ex-wife. You right. know, what kind of husband was he? And she okay. just, she did not give any sort of interviews whatsoever. So, I don't know if, and that could have been you know, he gave up all rights to the child and she remarried. I don't know. Okay. All right. I don't I know. Just, I, I, I was, was wondering, wondering that then. I was I, wondering that myself, but I never found anything about her. She, you know, she just, she ended up moving to Iowa or Idaho, one of those states. And, um, one of those I states. One of the, I'm pretty <laughs> sure it was Iowa, but she just, you know, she refused to say anything negative or hmm. positive about him. Hmm. That would be kind of hard if they had like tumultuous divorce. Well, definitely. Or but, you know, but it's maybe still. She's trying to protect her kid. Right. That's her, her child's father. Yeah. And, you know, let's protect Regardless, him. Right. Yeah. Right. I mean, unless, I mean, well, I get, you'll, it would all depend on what he did or didn't Right. Do. Exactly. <laughs> okay. So they go to a movie and then they go to um, have a bite to eat at TGI Fridays at the Northridge Mall. When they left the restaurant at about 10.15 p.m. And, and made their way to their car in the parking lot, tragedy struck. According to Jesse, Barbara was attacked by two young black men who ran at them and began stabbing Barbara viciously in the face, the head, and the neck over and over. She Damn. ended up having 21 very deep stab wounds in her face, head, and neck. Shit. When he noticed what was going on, he said he ran to the other side to help her, and then um, he was stabbed three or four times, one of those stab wounds puncturing a lung, before the two black men ran away. In the melee, Jesse Anderson was able to knock a red L.A. Clippers baseball cap off one of the guy's heads, and then they also left the murder weapon, which was a red-handled fishing knife. And as two people were running up to give help, Jesse was pulling the knife out of his lung just as they showed up. So they ended up calling 911 and Jesse's like, my wife, uh, my wife needs help. And he's rambling. And when authorities arrived, they found Barbara critically injured, lying on the ground. Her husband was treated on the scene for puncture wounds to the chest and lung. Two witnesses were by her side. Now, Jesse Anderson told first responders that he and his wife were assaulted by two young black men who he said left behind the L.A. Clippers cap and the red handled fishing knife. Mm -hmm. Like a fishing knife, like a fillet knife. Those things are sharp. Yes, I'm. All I know is that that knife was only sold in two places in Milwaukee. Really? Yes, there are only two places you can get them. Interesting. Jesse and Barbara Anderson were then rushed to a nearby hospital while investigators remained on the scene. Now, right away, they had their doubts. No. Investigators. Okay. So first, I mean, first of all, the first thing that stands out is Northridge Mall is in a very bad part of town it's not a part of town that most uh uh let's see most financially 
uh, what's the word? Wealthy white people. Wealthy white people <laughs> would go to. Yeah. You know, they, they weren't rich by any means, but they were definitely they were affluent. Affluent, yes. So this is not where you would take your wife on a date, you know, at 10, 15 at night. That's just odd. No, gotcha. First of all, there are other places that were showing the movie closer to their home and more uh, in safer neighborhoods. Mm. Other TGI Fridays closer to their home hmm. or in, you know, within 20 miles going the other direction. See, I would have been like, why are we on this side of town? Right. I mean, and she, maybe like, she was. Just, what are we doing? Yeah, uh, maybe she was. So that was. Off, I'd be like, I don't want to go to no uh-huh. fucking TGI Fridays. <laughs> so, uh, exactly. <laughs> well, 19, what, 1992, was that, it was pretty new then. Like, I don't remember when TGI Fridays first well, opened. Well, when we live, because of where we live, we're like one of the last people to get anything like that. Okay. But, um. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's okay. like an Applebee's. Yeah. I mean, like it's not an awful. Yeah. I mean, you know, if you just want cold beer after a football game or something, it's a decent place to go. But someone yeah. else is dying. Right. <laughs> right. Okay. So that was the first thing. The mall's in a sketchy part of town. Why even go there? Not only that, but the manner of the attack aroused their, aroused their suspicions. Okay. Because Barbara had some serious wounds in comparison to her husband's wounds. Mm-hmm. That's right? what I was thinking of, like, if he, like, I'm just going to say, if he had to stab himself, he, there's probably going to be, like, um, hesitation, you know? It's not like he's just going to go, and then. Ow. <laughs> Sorry. Let the record be now that she just stabbed me. <laughs> she like my sound effect? <laughs> All right. So, so they're like, yeah, this is, this is weird. She suffered 21 stab wounds to her face and skull all deep and brutal and her husband only suffered three or four stab wounds to his chest and all but one of them were superficial investigators also determined that barbara's wounds were not typical of wounds and stranger assaults i mean if these were um you know if this was like an attack say like a gang initiation it's usually like you know stab and run or right. shoot and run it's not this is not the pattern of you know gang activity that's like passion this is like, rage and passion and, yeah. of someone you know right it's indicative of rage against someone you know the police said they so, and they also did not want to automatically jump to conclusion that two black men committed this crime because only a couple of years earlier in boston massachusetts actually in 1999 um, a guy named charles stewart called police on his car phone to tell them that he and his wife carol had just been shot by a black mugger after they left a birthing class so they had to go to this hospital and you know in boston in a bad part of the city and his wife was shot to death mm. and and she was pregnant the boston police automatically believed his story and every black man in the area was stopped and interrogated and it just caused huge racial um issues in the area right, right? which as it would um now all of boston now, later on Stewart committed suicide 10 weeks later, shortly after he collected nearly $300,000 in life insurance. And his younger brother admitted to police that he had also helped with the crime. All, by this time, um, all Boston found that Stewart shot his pregnant wife. It wasn't a non-existent black mugger. But the damage had already been done. People were enraged by the racial implications of his claims. And the Boston Police Department um, and the Boston Police Department's response to his story. So it it really caused distrust with the police right. department, right? And the Milwaukee police suspected immediately that Jesse was trying to blame it on, you know, oh, right. the police will believe me. It's just these black guys, yeah. right? 
All right. They did not share this opinion with the press, but the press ran with the racial theories. You know, here we have this perfect white couple being killed by two black men. Um, but see, all that does is when it is, you know, let's just say in a different crime, two black men did stab a woman and her husband as they're coming out of the movie theater. All that does is it taints like, oh, well, the media says it. They always say it's the, the black guy and then they might not take it. It's like crying wolf. Right. Right. All right. So um, the I do. I just want to say that the police chief told a news conference on Sunday that they did find physical evidence at the scene, but they did not try to discredit the press or anything they they were doing their own investigation as police are known to do while the <laughs> while the press did their own thing no. right no <laughs> all right the, the the press continued to focus on the racial implications of the attack they aired pictures of the la clippers hat and the knife and they warned everyone to stay away from the Northridge mall they said the mall was a blight it's unsafe for anyone who goes there it's a harbor for gang activity People were scared. Fear grew in the community. People wrote letters to the editor demanding that the mall be closed. Um, and the, really, everybody was scared and the media was to blame. In the public eye, young black men were suspect, suspect and dangerous. But again, the police did not, you know, they had their doubts about the story. So these doubts were completely erased when a young black man called the police station and said, you know what, that man that's all over the news and that I sold him that L.A. Clippers hat just the other day. You so, go, boy. Okay, so this is the thing. The young college student had been sitting at a park near the mall. I, I read it was at a park. Then I read it was at the same mall where the incident occurred. So I'm unsure if it was a park near the mall or, or what. But anyway, he was sitting at the park with uh, his girlfriend and somebody else when uh, the very same white guy who splashed all over the news walked up and said, Dude, I really like your hat. I'll give you 20 bucks for it. Uh-huh. Now, Dirt 20 bag. bucks for a hat? Yeah, that's beer money. So, of course, the kid's like, sure. sure. He didn't even hesitate. Yeah. He happily traded the cap for the cash. Not only that, but then investigators found out that that red-handled fishing knife left behind at the scene was only sold in two places in Milwaukee. And it was a fairly new, I guess, edition of the knife. So, it was easy to locate, you know, wow. where. It was Super bought. Criminals never right? think about stuff like that. No, they don't. You know, I guess just, you know, you say, oh, black man, they're automatically going to think, but whatever. Mm-hmm. All right. So they found out it was purchased in a military surplus store a few weeks earlier by the very man whose wife was brutally stabbed. Oh. Now, 30, Barbara Lynch was 33 years old at the time, and she went into a coma and died two days after the attack. And they have three kids. They have three kids, five, two, and one. <sighs> Police were still sorting out the evidence, um, but a few days later, on April 29th, 1992, Jesse Anderson was arrested for her murder. He was 34. He had bail set at $1 million, and investigators searched the Anderson's car and home, removing evidence. They collected blood samples from the car, and they found a conciliatory letter from Barbara Anderson to her husband, Jesse Anderson, that was dated like 1987 or something, and I'm going to get into that later. Okay. They also discovered that a month before the attack, Jesse Anderson had called an insurance company to make sure that his wife's $250,000 life insurance policy was still updated. Of course he did. Yeah. In addition, Jesse's story just didn't add up. He told police the assailants he described did not attempt to rob him or his wife, although a purse strap was broken. 
Also, the wounds inflicted bore no resemblance to those that are usually inflicted by thieves or gang members undergoing an initiation, like I said. So, no, they believe Jesse killed his own wife, and those who knew the couple were shocked in disbelief. Also, I want to point out that he ended up going to his wife's funeral in handcuffs. I'm surprised they let him go. I am, too. And, uh, but they did. They did. He was there. All right. So I'm going to stop here for a moment so that we can hear from this episode's sponsor. So, like I said, everybody was shocked that Jesse Anderson was being accused of killing his wife. They were the perfect couple from all outward appearances. They were hardworking. They were devoted to each other and to their community. And they were financially successful. Records show that Barbara was the president and loan shareholder of Olympic Petroleum Products, Inc., which is actually, that's the, the husband's company, but she's the president. And he was listed as the secretary of the company. Hmm. He earned at that time to an 125 equivalent to about a quarter million dollars a year today. Wow. So when the couple was ready to start a family, they decided that Barbara didn't have to work. She could quit working to be a stay-at-home mom for their three children. From all outward appearances, like I said, everybody believed they had a perfect life. They attended mass. They volunteered countless hours to civic and charitable organizations. Mrs. Anderson was a member of the Women's Club. And Jesse Anderson, who was trim, balding, I don't know whether that matters. He was a six-foot man, is outgoing, personable, and energetic. He was into golfing. He was a marathon runner. He played basketball. And he was also on the Board of Appeals and ran unsuccessfully for a county office. So he was involved in the community. Wow. They were smart and beautiful and financially successful. They belonged to a private country club. They were able to take vacations. As a matter of fact, they had recently taken a second honeymoon to Jamaica. Wow, I never had a first honeymoon. Right? (laughs) I mean, which... Now, totally okay yeah, so it. this is kind of a red flag to police also because detectives are like, well, you know what? They've only been married five or six years. Why would they have a second honeymoon? Yeah. Were there problems in the marriage? That's what they're wondering. Did they have marital problems? Was this an attempt to like maybe work things out? Like a last hurrah. Right. And police and the prosecution believed that there were issues. So on April 29th, Anderson was charged with murder of his wife, as I said. And I said that he um, attended his wife's funeral in handcuffs, surrounded by police. There was plenty of evidence of abuse and adultery, and they didn't believe for a minute that the Andersons lived a perfect life. The most damning evidence was a letter from Barbara to her husband. That's what was found in the car? That's what was found in their house when oh, they searched house. the house. Okay. And I really wanted to get a hold of this letter, but I couldn't find it anywhere. Oh. Mm-hmm. All right, so um, according to sources, Barbara was apologetic to her husband, promising him that she would do better from now on. She promised that she would lose weight because she knew that she disgusted him. Now, this pisses me off, and your face is like, what? Fuck you very much. She was (laughs) five foot, 10 inches tall, and weighed 159 pounds. That is... Is not overweight for no. a five foot ten eight inch woman. It's not overweight for a shorter woman. It's a normal American woman, right? Wow. Yeah. And you know it, this pisses me off because she was vulnerable. She was she was a stay at home mom. Had not many friends. None of her family was around. And he is, um, you know, postpartum depression. Well, she had three kids back to back. Yes, and she had a two year old and a one year old back to back. I mean, he, what a fucking jerk. I'm sorry. 
uh, you and your me, balding ass. That's you know, why they included yeah, that. He is so cruel. She was five. Like I said, um, this made her feel inadequate. She, you know, um, the letter also alluded to physical abuse and when she wrote that his dissatisfaction with her is mostly her own uh, her own fault. That was the reason why he pushed and kicked her and threatened to throw her out of the house. He also, she also made comments about how she wishes that he wouldn't constantly talk about divorce. Um, she begged for reconciliation and she begged Anderson not to follow through with threats to take her credit cards away and pull out the phone. Pull out the phone? Yeah. Well, they didn't have cell phones back then. It I know, but like I'm just landline. saying like you're yeah. going like, to keep her Let's isolate her yeah. even further. So, yes. Okay. So I Googled it. An average ideal weight chart for a woman who is 5'10", is anywhere from 135 to 165. Right. Yeah. I Googled too. Yeah. she's She was normal. But he made her feel like a cow. I fucking hate men sometimes. I, yeah. Well, sometimes. I hate men like this. Like, yes. my husband never once says anything about my weight. Like, he tells me every day how beautiful I am and how much he loves me. And he has never once said, you know, maybe you'd feel better if you dropped 10. You know, never once has he made any kind of comment about my weight. Good, he shouldn't. No, he's he's amazing. That, but there are men that like that's they want to have this outward appearance of being, you know, the perfect couple. And I mean, even mm-hmm. when someone says something like kidding, you know, like they're joking, they say it in a joking way. Women tend to, and even some men, you know, I mean, if it's yes. the other way around, you know, it's like you might be joking and trying to kid or you know just rass someone, but. We can take that personally, especially if we're not happy with our own selves. Right, right. So I mean, and, it's like yeah, you have to yeah. tread lightly and exactly. Like that. But that does, he wasn't treading lightly. No, he's he was just a son of a bitch. He's not the like he he reminds me of like a type A, like a narcissist. Like he wants everybody to believe that his life is perfect. Yeah. Now the defense attorney, in his opening statement to an all-white jury of ten men and four women, um, said that he would prove the prosecution witnesses were unreliable. He said that one witness identified his client only after an interview with the police and other witnesses failed to initially identify Anderson or did so only after seeing his pictures on television or in newspaper articles. So he's trying to discount the um, the boy, the boy, the young man who sold his cap and then also the woman who sold him the knife. Okay, so why would they report it if they didn't see it? So if I if I okay, well, I'm sold somebody, explain, yeah. if I sold you this pen, and then oh this random pen was found somewhere, right. I'm not gonna go. Oh my god, I sold Mercedes that pen unless they showed you, and I'm like, holy shit, that's the lady I sold the pen to. Right, right. Okay, okay. So White said the prosecution, and White is the prosecutor, would show that Anderson early earlier purchased a red-handled fishing knife and a black Los Angeles. I thought it was red. Here it says black, but I think it was red. I don't know. It's a L.A. Los Angeles Clippers hat. Both were found at the crime scene. She said that Anderson purchased the hat from Tommy Miles, the Milwaukee resident, for $20 at the shopping mall near near where Mrs. Anderson was killed hours later. Just before giving his opening state her opening statement, the prosecutor filed a motion to allow certain evidence, notes from a ma- marriage counselor that Mrs. Anderson had visited four months before her murder. So they tried to allow the marriage counselor's notes. The judge denied that. The judge said no. Okay. Because that, would that be hearsay? Um, I I'm not sure if that would be hearsay or relevance. I don't know why the judge didn't allow it. Okay. It didn't say. 
the judge, um, but the judge, well, in his, in her request, White told the judge her husband was always on her about her problem and she could never please her husband in that sense. Things basically in the relationship were not going very well. Judge Michael D. Guoli denied White's request to submit the marriage counselor's notes, but that didn't stop her from mentioning other damning evidence in the trial, like the university student, the fishing knife, and um, letter that she had written earlier. Now, Anderson's defense attorney's name was Coffee, argued that the clerk who sold the red-handled knife was at first unable to identify Anderson. After the lineup, she went off with the detective and was interviewed, and then she came back, and she was absolutely certain. So that's where they're getting that. Oh, okay. The defense didn't have a whole lot to say in regards to the testimony of friends and family gave. One friend told jurors that when he visited Anderson at the hospital after the attack, that Anderson was angrily demanding that his wife's life support systems be removed oh, as she lay unconscious in a hospital bed. Jeez, dude. The prosecutor quoted Anderson as saying, I want her off life support. I want her off life support now. If the doctors give me any trouble, I'll kick their ass. <laughs> Another family fr friend named Robert Fisher confirmed that Anderson said the same thing to him when he visited Anderson's hospital room. But he testified that Anderson only responded after the learning that there was no hope for her to survive. Uh, of course, he doesn't want her to come back. Yeah. You know, her story would definitely uh, convince a jury, uh, wouldn't it? Most yeah. definitely. Whatever the case, the jury didn't buy the black attack story. And on August 13th, <laughs> sorry, sorry, I couldn't help it. Um, and on August 13th, 1992, Jesse Michael Anderson was found guilty of killing his wife by an all-white jury who deliberated about nine hours. Mrs. Anderson's relatives clapped and cheered when Anderson was convicted. Now, the mandatory sentence for this conviction is life in prison, but the presiding, presiding judge can decide when someone is eligible for parole. So you have to serve, um, you get a life and then at you have to serve a minimum of 13 years before you can be offered parole. And this is what the, uh, the defense said, you know, let's do a uh, minimum, let's do life with a minimum 13 years. The Lynch family disagreed. They gave brief impact statements to the judge before the sentence was handed down, and they urged the judge to sentence Anderson to prison for the rest of his life with no chance of parole. This man should never be free again, said Mrs. Anderson's brother, Kevin Lynch. He robbed my family of a beautiful person, and he robbed his children of a beautiful mother. The judge agreed with the Lynch family, and he minced no words when he handed down Anderson's sentence. He said, you should die in prison. You should never be among us again. The judge further stated that Anderson's crime was even more heinous, and I, you know how much I hate that word. <laughs> it was even more heinous because he preyed upon fear and racism when he tried blaming his wife's stabbing death on two black youths. The judge sentenced Anderson to at least 60 years in prison for the murder, stating, we see no remorse, we see no true feelings. He should be on his knees praying for God to, for, to God for forgiveness. We will not allow you to ever be on the streets again. Wow. Yeah. So Jesse Anderson, um, 35 at the time, didn't testify at all in his eight-day trial, but he had plenty to say after his conviction and sentencing. He claimed that he was treated unfairly by the judge and jury, and he vowed to find the assailants who killed his wife. He actually went so far as to hire a Milwaukee PI, private mm. investigator. Interesting. We're going to hear from him in just a few minutes. Anderson said he was deprived of a fair trial because jurors were biased after hearing excessive publicity about the case. He also said the judge should have barred his evidence, the letter 
that his wife wrote um, that described being beaten by him in 1987. And he said and said that he would continuously talk about divorce. He, he thought that shouldn't have been allowed. He said, I've been made a scapegoat in a farce that some people call a trial. In a fair and impartial trial, my innocence would have been proven. Oh, my word. The three Anderson children were taken in by Barbara's family, who were devastated by the loss of their beautiful, beloved sister. They had no idea that she was living in an abusive relationship, and they regret that she never felt comfortable enough to reach out to them. Mm. They learned that Barbara's story is not rare, that a lot of women... um, don't reach out when they're well they're ashamed they're ashamed or they don't realize it or they think it's their fault i don't know yeah. well because they're beaten down like emotionally right and their their self-confidence i mean i'm assuming from other stories right that their self-confidence is so low that they do believe well i wouldn't have said those things or done those things or hit you if you wouldn't have made me mad right type thing yeah you know, like this is your fault i punched you in the face and knocked your teeth out because you bought the wrong meat for dinner or some stupid shit like that right you know so they yeah they're they're mentally not in the right state of mind to see clearly that this is not right yeah well her family i mean they were just devastated to learn of this and they started a um, a foundation called bella b-e-l-a that stands for her initials barbara ellen lynch anderson and it's a nonprofit devoted to helping, um, giving money to shelters and helping women wow. in domestic. That's awesome. Um, yeah. It's still, I, I try to look it up. They, they don't do much, but they do like a fundraiser, like a marathon or something every year. But this isn't the end of the story. Okay. So let me tell you a little bit about um, Jesse. You know, I told you he hired um, a guy, Norbert Kazuski who was a Milwaukee private investigator to locate the real murderers. And, you know, he would come in and visit Jesse from time to time. And he said that Jesse Anderson always proclaimed his innocence. He was constantly bad-mouthing the police and the judge and those who didn't believe that he and his wife were attacked by two black guys. He wasn't a popular prison for a number of reasons, some of which I'll talk about in a minute. And he told his private investigator that he always had to watch his back. Well, you know, I'm thinking, okay, so let's just say, okay, let's say two black guys attacked him, but did he hire two black guys to attack him? Right. Yeah. I mean, that's what I'm thinking. Like, yeah, yeah he might be telling the truth. Two black guys attacked us. Yeah. Well, well, they, I mean, through evidence that I'm not going to go into, they mm-hmm. figured it was definitely him. There were oh, no okay. two, there were there no, no there were no oh, black okay. guys involved. Okay. Now, the PI continued, he told me a number of times when he had minor threats from various inmates, he'd say, Norb, I'm always looking over my shoulder. If they come at me from the front, I know I can defend myself, but you never know when some guy is going to go loony. Those were prophetic words from Anderson. (laughs) On November 28th, 1994, a little over two years since he murdered his wife, Anderson and two other inmates at Columbia Correctional Institution in Portage, Wisconsin, were assigned to clean a restroom in the prison gym. They were left alone, like the guards unshackled them and left them in this locker room area. Mm-hmm. One of the men was named Christopher Scarver, and he was an inmate in for killing his former boss. His boss had promised him some sort of raise or something, and it was a lie, so he killed the guy. <laughs> the other inmate was also extremely unpopular, and his name was Jeffrey Dahmer. <gasps> he was in for murdering 17 African Americans and, and, and eating them. Yep. Okay. So here we have these three men who had never interacted with each other before in the prison until that morning. And 
they were left unshackled by the guards to clean the bathrooms. Is this when Jeffrey Dahmer got beat to oh. So let me tell you, okay? So Scarver is the black guy who was in there with him. He told prison officials that while he was filling his mop bucket, you know, he had his back to the guys, one of them poked him in the back with a mop. He said, I turned around and Dahmer and Jesse were kind of laughing under their breath. I looked into their eyes and I couldn't tell which one had done it. But the damage was done. He's pissed. So the three men then split up to clean different areas of the restroom slash locker room. And Scarver's still pissed. He's pissed and disgusted. And he's like, that's it. So he tracks down Dahmer. He corners Dahmer and confronts him with, I guess he just so happens to have this newspaper article in his pocket. It's a newspaper article that detailed Dahmer's crimes. According to Scarver, Dahmer was apparently shocked and started looking for the door pretty quick. Scarver then picked up a metal rod and crushed Dahmer's skull with two swings. He ended he up him with a weight. Yes. It was a metal, it was a metal bar weight or whatever. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And you know, supposedly um, Dahmer never even fought back. Like no. He, like he just took it. Right. Cause um, my friend, I, I have not been able to find this. Like there was a documentary done on it. Okay. And the preacher or the priest who had like consulted Dahmer while he was in jail um, had said that like, like he supposedly he had really found yes like, like he Jesus was yes and or whatever in that there was no fighting back and that he was just said this is basically it's believed that he was like this is what i deserve well i don't know the case like to me on all the different sources that i read um like it was probably a blitz like he wasn't there was not much time between, yeah yeah okay so there were still no officials around. Scarver's like, well, I got a beef with Anderson, too. So then he went after Anderson and he dealt similar blows. He said pretty much the same thing happened. He got his head put out. So according to Scarver, both men deserve to die. Jeffrey Dahmer wasn't repented at all. Scarver claimed that Dahmer would taunt other inmates by using prison food and ketchup to replicate bloodied severed limbs. Really? Now, I've also seen where that was not true, but I've also seen where like Dahmer would put up signs saying, you know, um, ca cannibal, uh, cannibal anonymous meeting tonight Shut and, up. and things like that. And oh like, like putting, you know, walking past guards going, I bite. I mean, I don't know if any of that's true, but this is what I read. Oh. Um, Scarver said that Dahmer was a target in the prison. As I'm a matter sure. of fact, Dahmer survived an earlier attack by a guy named Osvaldo DeRuthi, who attempted to slash Dahmer's neck with a razor in front of gar guards. Scarver said that Dahmer and Anderson had been murdered for un had had murder for unacceptable reasons. And he says it's a humili uh, humiliating to be in the same work detail with people who shouldn't even be in the murderer club. Well, he wasn't kidding about these loonies that he was in the right? <laughs> right? Um, Anderson, he said that Anderson ran afoul of him, um, of Scarver's personal prison code, when Anderson defaced a portrait of the le legendary civil rights leader, Martin Luther King Jr., making Anderson a racist in the eyes of Scarver, who's black. Scarver said there was a picture in the arts and crafts room that a prisoner had spent a lot of time painting, and he hung it up in that room to dry. Scarver said Anderson painted a blood dot on MLK Jr.'s forehead as if it were a bullet wound. Scarver said he was also furious that Anderson tried to pin his wife's murder on two black guys, so he decided that the best course of action was to cave in Anderson's head with a metal rod just after doing the same thing to Dahmer. Damn. 
When guards finally came back to the area, they found Dahmer still alive, but barely. He had extreme head and face injuries. He was taken to the hospital where he was then pronounced dead. Anderson, ironically, hung on for two days, just like his wife did, before he was removed from life support. And Barbara's family was sad for the Anderson family. It's like, you know, we don't, we, we feel for them, but there is ironic justice in the situation. Yeah. Later, Scarver told reporters that he had a hit list of five guys who he did not feel were worthy of the word murderer because of who and how they were killed. He also said that the blitz attacks could not have happened with, without help from the guards who left the three unshackled and alone. Uh-huh. This was investigated, and Scarver was the only one ever held responsible for those murders. And as you can imagine, people had a hard time believing that Dahmer's murder wasn't a conspiratorial effort. Yeah. I mean, days after the murder, this is all over the news. Phil Donahue had a, a show. Did you ever watch Phil Donahue? Oh, yeah. Well, he interviewed a lady named Rita Isbell, and she was a sister of one of Dahmer's victims. And she told Donahue that just before Dahmer's murder, she had received at least 10 telephone calls from African-American men who told her that Dahmer would be slain in prison. Don't worry about it, sister. It's all been taken care of, she quoted them as saying. Hmm. And all of Dahmer's victims were African-American? Yes. I didn't realize all of them were. Well, I think one of them, one of them kind of looked Asian. I, yeah, I think so. Maybe. All right. Many thought the murders had to have been done by maybe more than one, one person. Away. It was the one that got away. And then, but no, he got away and then he was taken back in because Dahmer went out and said, oh, he's just drunk. He's my yes, boyfriend. We just had a fight. Yeah. All right. So many people thought the murders had to have been done by more than one person. The origin of the blows, whether from the front or behind, also is in question because Dahmer and Anderson were almost as tall as Scarver. Um, In addition, Columbia County Sheriff's Captain Steve Rose said that Anderson appeared to have had a scuffle with his attacker. And don't forget, Anderson had a brown belt. So so that was um, always something that they questioned. How could Scarver have, you know, unless he came up from behind. Mm -hmm. But they said there was a scuffle. Though the crime was intentional, Scarver complained of delusional thoughts that he was having in prison. Prison doctors have conducted over 10 evaluations regarding his mental state. The man who killed Jeffrey Dahmer has his own theory. He says, yeah, my mental delusions are caused by prison food. Certain foods I eat cause me to have psychotic break, like breads, refined sugars. Those are the main culprits. And yes, those cause me to have psychotic breaks, too. So that, my dear, wow. is Jesse Anderson and his poetic, yeah. poetically just death. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, thank you. You're welcome. Interesting. That, I like how you... So I kind of like tied in Dahmer to yeah, this. Very um, nice. You know, it's also in, like the the police, the investigation, you know, they were, they were praised so much for not believing the story and with gut reaction and how, yeah. you know, they preserve the racial. And then now then you have the George Floyd incident. So, so there's a lot of press on this, but you know, I just thought, okay, finally I find one from Wisconsin yeah. that isn't Jeffrey Dahmer, George right. Floyd, but kind of still mm-hmm. is a little bit of both. Yeah. Kind of. Yeah. Oh, that was really good. Thank Thanks. you. Hey, That's you're awesome. welcome. Well, thank you so much for listening to this week's murder. We appreciate sharing our passion with you, and we'd like to thank you for your support. If you'd like to support us even further, please consider subscribing to our podcast and giving us a five-star rating and a comment. Your subscription and ratings are essential to our success. You, too, can, you can do this on your favorite platform. For more information and links to our Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter pages, please visit our website at itwasn'tmetruecrime.com. 
We are so grateful to spend our time together to share murder stories. Thank you so much for your support. Please recommend it wasn't me to your true crime living friends and family. Also, thank you to our Patreon supporters. You are the extra. You too can become one of our beloved patrons by signing up at patreon.com forward slash it wasn't me. Thanks again, guys. And remember, it, it wasn't, wasn't me. me. <laughs> <laughs>